Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. We have, today's a big day for us. So the biggest. The biggest, because Sammy and I have officially met you guys. We are That's next right. to each other in person right now. Um, and most of you are like, okay, like, why haven't you met yet? This is weird. Um, it is really weird. Like, it we so fully weird. bought into a podcast together without ever meeting. Oh, God. It's odd. It's odd. <laughs> <laughs> when you say it that way. <laughs> I mean, I think about it all the time. I'm like. Yeah, it was definitely like a rogue decision. Totally. Like, both, like we both like totally took like a like a leap, leap of faith. Leap of faith. Totally. Like, wow. It's beautiful, honestly. Like it's when you first look at it, you're like, wow, you guys are impulsive as fuck. <laughs> but I no. Mean, you could just look at my closet to know that's the case. Um, for me. Mm-hmm. So. But in retrospect, but yes. it's beautiful, and clearly the universe like brought us together, and here we are, um, officially meeting in the Big Apple. The Big Apple. So basically, like we said, big freaking day. We are recording episodes. We're having ourselves a time. Like, welcome to NYC. Mm -hmm. Um, Doing all the things. Uh, And this episode today is particularly pertinent to New York because we are interviewing the president of Eleanor's Legacy, Brett McSweeney. And Eleanor's Legacy is a New York-based organization that uh, has aims to elect and help the election of pro-choice Democratic women. We love it. Literally, hashtag love it. We love to see it. Um, And we're super excited to break down the work that they've done this election, the work they do every election, and um, not just every four years, every two years, but every single year there is an election. Um, and they are a part of electing these women. So it's super exciting. And we're going to break down today kind of what the 2020 election looked like in the lens of like women and feminism, um, which there's a lot to talk about on that front. So super excited. And here is Brett. So we'll start, uh, we'll start at the beginning. So Eleanor's legacy is named in honor of Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, who we take uh, our daily inspiration from. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're named in her honor um, because of her service as first lady in New York State, her service as first lady uh, of the country, and really um, first lady of the world um, when it came to her work with founding the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And she, however, um, as as each level as she rose um, in sort of like the electoral political world, she remained firmly rooted in organizing the Democratic Party and creating space for women within the Democratic Party um, and keeping an emphasis that democracy 
is uh, not about words, but action. Mm. And, um, and really embracing our civic responsibility, that it's on we the people uh, yeah. to make our democracy and our government as good as we know it can be. So we start from there. Love that. And what that means also is that we are a New York women's organization. Um, and we focus on electing solely pro-choice democratic women to state and local office across New York state. So that means every year is an election year. Um, it's not a two year cycle. Uh, every, um, every November, um, if not more frequently, there's an opportunity to be electing women at some level in New York state. We were founded in 2001 by Judith Hope, who was the first woman to chair the New York State Democratic Committee. She steered it all throughout the 90s. She's also the first woman who was elected a town supervisor on Long Island. She was the town supervisor of East Hampton Town. So she combined her experiences running for local office, being at the first, and organized Democratic Party politics. And she saw the opportunity and frankly the need to support in an organized fashion and create opportunities and level the playing field for women across New York State. Um, she had been chair of the state committee when Hillary ran for Senate in 2000. And she saw how women across the state uh, responded to Hillary's candidacy, both of course, because she was Hillary Clinton coming to town, right? Mm -hmm. But also because Hillary was the first woman elected to office statewide in her own right in New York state. So really breaking through and opening up and cracking open that energy for the 10 million women and girls across New York state a lot of people think of New York State as solidly blue. We don't get a lot of attention during a presidential election year. Yeah. Um, they think of us as progressive. Um, if they think of Seneca Falls or the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory or Stonewall, um, they think of New York being at least the home for uh, the ideas for women's rights, LGBTQ rights, labor rights. Um, but really, if you take a look at the context and if you really look at the numbers, women were and continue to be severely underrepresented in elected office in New York State, especially at that time. In 2000, 2001, our state ranked 29th in the nation for women serving in our state legislature. We had never elected a woman governor, a woman mayor of the city. Um, we've improved on that. Uh, we are at the highest yet uh, two decades later, uh, we are, but we are now at 19th in the nation. Um, so wow. we've made progress, um, but it sucks. shows you there's work to do. I know yeah. this is, this is back to the sort of constant, the theme of, um, this work requires like vigilance and constant sort of care and attention and staying focused, um, Shins. because politics happens all the time, but yeah. victories don't happen overnight. Yes. We love that. We always preach that here, um, of just the long game of politics and to not, um, disengage mm -hmm. after one election or think that, you know, things can change overnight with one election. It's takes time. Or that it's years. done. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Totally. And it's never done. Mm -hmm. It's never done. And never especially finished. to, I know with essentially non-presidential election years, there are so many elections, whether it's a special election to fill a seat, it's city mm -hmm. council. I mean, I know that's a 2021 initiative, not even initiative, mm -hmm. just election for city of New York, and there's so many more, too, um, that, that are on the horizon, and those are just as important, if not more important, as we've seen, and we talk about this a lot, but state and local politics really deserve more attention and are so key, especially in the era of COVID, where so many of these policy yep. choices are being made locally. Um, and also, honestly, too, as we're seeing more division across this country, 
we're really seeing the need to real, pay attention to what's happening in your own state and people honestly moving yep. as a result of what the, the law of the land is. Um, so I, th I think it's interesting just to think about the long game um, instead of the short game, which is definitely something that I know Eleanor's legacy is very much a part of, uh, which leads us to our next question, which is about the Baker Project. What is it? Right. So the Baker Project. So if the story of Eleanor's legacy is staying involved and investing in the long game, it, the other like part two or corollary to that is narrowing the focus um, as much as we can. And in 2018, we brought that focus specifically to not just electing women uh, up and down the ballot at the state and local level across New York, but spe with a specific focus on electing pro-choice Democratic women to the state Senate. And because, uh, again, <laughs> another theme is that uh, New York is considered a blue liberal beacon, and yet our state Senate had been in Republican, anti-choice, anti-gay control, um, majority control since at least World War II, for the most part. Um, so we had a Democratic governor, more often than not, usually we have a Democratic governor, um, a Democratic uh, majority state assembly, but a Republican, anti-choice, anti-gay, um, State Senate, and that meant bills that would come up and be passed session after session in the New York State Assembly. Um, sort of the biggest headline, of course, the Reproductive Health Act to codify Roe v. Wade in New York state law would go to the state, they would pass the assembly and they would go to the state Senate and never even make it out of committee. And they would wither and die there. And um, we all are sort of becoming greater, like this increasing awareness uh, to your point uh, about the, um, the, the, the relevance of state legislatures and how important they are to our day-to-day -day lives in a level that federal government um, might not be. Yeah. And so there was a, a big push of the sort of democratic and progressive coalition of um, organizations and individuals and candidates across New York State in 2018 to focus on the state Senate. But at Eleanor's Legacy, of course, our question is always, where are the women? And so with the Baker Project, we wanted to be the voice that said, we will join the fight to flip the state Senate, but we're going to do it by electing Democratic women in red to blue seats, flipping seats by electing women, and to claim a majority in the state Senate as a result of electing women. I love and that. And it worked. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, amazing. Well, how do you guys recruit these women like to run office that no that's a good question because that it's a changing the answer to that is changing mm -hmm. and i think it's because election cycle after election cycle certainly since 2016 there are women who are just getting up to run all by themselves right um they're getting out from behind their office desk or up off the couch or out of the classroom and they're running and so the recruitment process is sort of a balance between um talking, you know, the native um, sort of natural way of like when, when we can hit the road and go across the state and meet the women who are maybe county Democratic Party leaders or town Democratic chairs, or maybe just sort of that civic leader, you know, the woman who knows all the, uh, um, all the uh, other women to know in the town, have a cup of coffee, ask them, uh, ask them who they know and who they think should be running for office. 
So sort of keeping a running list like that, but also really it's just being available for all of these women who are self-starters that are coming forward saying, I want to run, and then helping them figure out what office is really best for them to run for, because there's so many offices to run for. Yeah. Um, when a woman comes forward, we want to make sure she chooses the right one at the right time. Awesome. Um, well, great. I, um, we kind of want to talk about political endorsements um, yeah. and that, how that plays into campaigns and elections. Um, so this is our st- I Have a Stupid Question segment. Um, Because this, I think, is definitely something that probably goes under the radar as far as how big of a factor it is when it comes to campaigns. Um, So what is a political endorsement? So if you think about running for office as the most public, maybe most arduous job interview process you'll ever go through, right? right? Because what you're really saying is hire me, voters, for this job, for town council, state legislature, Congress. And so what a political endorsement is, to continue that analogy, is it's references, right? When you apply for a job, you ask for references to put in a good word for you. Um, And that's exactly what a political endorsement is. Uh, It can be an individual, um, somebody who has some clout, some following, Mm -hmm. uh, ideally connected to the community and the voters that you're trying to reach. But of course, we all, as we watch the presidential election, we all have seen sort of more celebrity endorsements who have yeah. their platform and their audience mm-hmm. um, uh, to connect with people. It can be an organization like Eleanor's Legacy, or certainly in New York with such a strong union uh, movement. It can be a labor organization or a union um, or sort of a good government group or, or a, an organization out of a, out of a concern like um, Sierra Club or Nature Conservancy. Yeah. I think about it too when I'm going to vote um, I was talking to Sammy about this before, um, but in California, we have like so many different propositions that get really confusing. And like, that's why I bring this up because endorsements for propositions, at least for me, like are super helpful. And I'm like a political nerd, but still have to like do all my research and look at who supports things. And that's helps me make my decisions. So things like that, super influential, a political endorsement. And then obviously looking at candidates, I think too, especially down ballot races, um, looking at political endorsements on those about candidates you probably don't see as much or don't know as much about, like obviously a presidential election, you know, that's all that people talk about. But when you go down ballot, you start to see less familiar names and seeing those political Mm -hmm. endorsements are helpful when making your decision. So yeah, so they really work in both directions, right? Like they, they provide perhaps provide resources or um, to the candidate but for the v- for the voter looking at an endorsement they provide like legitimacy and sort of a shorthand to a thumbs up um, to a candidate yeah um, that that you're voting for and then obviously or maybe not so obviously mm-hmm. once elected do politicians owe organizations that endorse them anything I mean I would assume if we're talking a celebrity like if Haley Bieber endorses <laughs> Joe Biden like Joe Biden does not owe Haley Bieber anything, but if it's Eleanor's legacy, if it's Sierra Club, if it's someone that's really within, I would say the political jurisdiction or dialogue, does that politician then have to essentially, you know, go forward with legislation or policy on their behalf or are they no longer kind of connected and they're like sayonara? Right, so the answer is no. (laughs) uh, An elected official is responsible to the voters 
who elected them and the constituents in their district, right? And to their own uh, understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Um, and, um, and, and, and that's it, full stop. Yeah. However, of course, what an endorsement means, say from Eleanor's legacy, uh, is that we are a pro-choice democratic women's organization. We're endorsing the candidate because we believe when she goes to the state Senate, um, she will take seriously any legislation or issue concerning reproductive justice. And when it comes time to vote on that, that she's going to vote out of concern for advancing reproductive, yeah. reproductive justice. Yeah. But that's as far as that's as far as it goes. Um, but like if sure. the donors, for example, they obviously a candidate or a politician doesn't have to um, vote in favor of their donors. But that's kind of what we see. Right. Is once these you know, elected yeah. officials get into office, that's when maybe they are more inclined to listen to their constituency less and their donors more. I would say that what we're getting into, like <laughs> a, a side project of mine, would be campaign finance reform. Yes. It's really what that's talking about is campaign finance reform, because why, why is a candidate or an elected official susceptible to the vagaries of a big donor, whether it's a big donor individual or a big donor organization, right? It's because there's another election that they want to run and they want to be able to count on that support. Yeah. Um, it should not be quid pro quo. In fact, quid pro quo is legal. Um, and violates campaign finance law, um, but is there the if if there's the appearance of um, something like that going on, funny business um, to call it lightly, I would I would attribute it to the the dire need for campaign finance reform uh, and public financing of elections at every level of office in our country, um, so that we can feel as though the people we're voting for are people we can trust, like I said, to make the right choices on behalf of their constituents and their voters and their own sense of right and wrong. Yeah. Well, great. I mean, now we kind of want to just get into this post-election world that we're in right now, um, and especially through the lens of women this election and how they voted to impact players in organizing to our first women vice president. Like, we want to get into all of that. So, um, starting with that, we want to just talk about these election firsts. Um, mm -hmm. And so we saw a number of significant firsts from Democrat Sarah McBride becoming the nation's first ever transgender state senator, and Richie Torres became the first openly gay Afro-Latino representative, and then obviously Kamala Harris becoming the first um, black woman, first Indian woman to become vice president-elect of the United States. So let's talk about these wins. What does that mean to Eleanor's legacy and what you guys do? And Sure. I mean, I think what it does for all of us, for all of us who believe that there's room for improvement in our American democratic experiment, is that it proves the case um, that you don't have to be a stale, pale male uh, to run for <laughs> office. Oh my gosh, that's epic. <laughs> and, uh, and, you, and you can win. But you can run and you can win and voters will vote for you and voters will um, vote for you on the issues and maybe frankly they'll just vote for you because you're different and they yeah. want change and you represent a different voice and you bring different people to the table with you mm -hmm. so makes it a little bit easier because certainly a lot of the first sort of uh like era of eleanor's legacy and, and in emily's list or anyone trying to crack open and change the face of power, as they say at Emily's List, a lot of it was proving the case, right? To get women yeah. to run, to believe that they can run, 
to that donors would show up for them, that voter, voters would. And now that's happening and everyone can see that. Um, so now we get to maybe turn to page two uh, of the story and say, now that you're running, let's focus on what office you're running for. Again, it's not just presidential and it's not just congressional. It starts from your village all the way up um, your municipality to your town, to your county, to state house. And then maybe we get to page three of the story and talk about, okay, so you won. How do we get you into leadership? How do you get to be a chair of a committee, to be leader of the house, to um, really affect change? I love that, like, next step part of it. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I have to say, you know, and it, and it extends beyond what some of the few headlines are, but, you know, the, the, it's the largest number of Native American uh, members of the House um, in Congress, um, yeah. largest delegation, the, the largest contingent of openly LGBTQ members of Congress. The, um, you know, it, it sort of continues from there. Yeah. Mondaire Jones, um, a new member of the congressional delegation from New York representing Rockland in Westchester County, also an openly gay man. Um, so there's, there's a sort of like headlines beyond headlines about how um, voters are responding to and receptive to voting for a new voice uh, yeah. in, in our American politics. Yeah, I feel like we've been talking about this and how it's equally as exciting as it is kind of, I guess, frustrating or just like that it has taken this long. Um, but when you again, when you look back, like we keep talking about it's the 100 year anniversary of women's suffrage. Like we definitely are behind as far in having to play catch up in a way um, of getting women and, you know, having diversity in um, these elected seats. I mean, but again, it's important to note. And I love also what you said about not only like paying attention past this election and how do you get how do you get more power how do you get into these leadership positions? It's not over after the election, but it's also important to know after this election we've seen all these firsts, but we still only women only hold like a quarter of the house, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's still so much work to be done, um, and so we celebrate and we relish in this moment, but the work doesn't stop. So I definitely love that aspect of your guys's work. It's very important. Yeah, and I, I think that leads me to my next question, which is really about sort of that, that page three of getting more of these diverse officials, once they're in elected office, into these committees or into these more leadership roles, um, whether it's being, you know, junior, senior, whatnot, um, and, you know, heads of these tables, is does Eleanor's legacy get, to the, get them to that finish line? Like, what mechanisms, if also not just Eleanor's legacy, make this possible like what how do they how do they get there right so there are there are organizations uh that that are that are sort of newish on the scene that are focusing on that um on that topic we really focus on the you should run here's how to run here's how to win um and that part two only because we can't do everything right so uh so we try to stay in our lane and focus on what we're good at um which is raising that attention in recruiting and training and electing candidates. Uh, but there are organizations um, that are out there that um, like the um, DLCC, Democratic, what is it, Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee that focuses on running and also elevating leadership. Um, Future Now, um, which focuses on building a ecosystem for, for state Democratic progressive state legislators from across the country. Um, uh, sort of a, a, in a, you know, I have to tip my hat as much as I 
at Eleanor's Legacy and in my personal life focus on electing pro-choice Democratic women, a lot of the models that we on the left or in the Democratic ecosystem are building were really modeled for us by our Republican uh, brethren on the other side about, um, say, like the Heritage uh, Foundation or the Federalist Society, about building these communities, um, not just in states and cities, but nationally. Um, not just one election cycle, but across generations to build this pipeline um, for leadership. So now there, there's, there are organizations that are answering that on the left for what they really built for 30 years now, if not yeah. more. On the I think right. it's interesting seeing how each side can inform each other. And with that, I mean, in the last, in the midterms, we saw such a blue wave uh, and so many more women running for office on the Democratic side. And now this election, interestingly enough, has been kind of called like the Republican women's year, if you will, and this resurgence of the conservative women. And I think it's really, you know, weird to see sort of this mirror effect, especially as you're saying, you know, it's a hundred years of women's suffrage and we're celebrating that, but yet there do seem to be some of these mechanisms or trends toward going back in time. I, some of these people that have been elected, I'm like, is this 1950s, this 1920s? It's a little freaky. So I'm just curious what your perspective is on that. I appreciate your point because I share it. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> your perspective. That's a, we're electing women. Wait a minute, who are we electing? Uh, sort of a like, let's let's dig a little deeper. What's the context here? Because indeed, the number of Republican women, if we just want to take it um, from the congressional federal level. Um, they've increased the number of uh, Republican women elected to Congress. They took that number from 13, 13 Republican women have been serving in Congress for the past two years in the 116th Congress. And now that number, not all votes are counted, finished being counted. We haven't even really begun counting here in New York State. We have a lot of election results still to be determined. Right. Um, but that number looks like it's going to be somewhere in the ballpark of like 23 to 26 or seven. Republican women. Mm -hmm. So statistically, um, proportionally, that's a huge increase, right? Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of women, Democratic women serving in the House, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 85 to 90. So yes, definitely Republican women won this year. We can yeah. say that full stop. And I have um, a kind of loaded question about this topic. Go for um. it. It's just, <laughs> it's just us and the, and the podcast universe. Right. Um, no, I mean, this topic of Republican women, like, what does that mean to you guys at Eleanor's Legacy that we're seeing like a surge? We have more women now, like we getting we're getting women elected. But what does that mean when they're Republican women to you guys? And this topic of Republican women and how also we look at the kind of, I guess, exit poll numbers that are slowly coming in, but white women um majority voted for Trump. So how do we kind of like break that down? And I guess too, from like a feminist lens, like look at this and look at why women are voting this way and why we have more like Republican women. What, how should we look at that as, you know, <laughs> women who want to support women, but like also um, who kind of contradict the progression that we're trying to achieve? I don't know. It's definitely like a hard, right? I guess. Yeah. Wait, if I don't know how to feel about it fully. I mean, I know how I feel, but I'm trying to like balance it. I don't know. I think, so that's a good point, Maddie, is that just because a woman does it doesn't mean a feminist did it, yeah. right? And uh, for me, uh, feminism um, uh, and being a feminist 
means the liberation of women and self-identifying women from the confines and constraints of a capitalist male-dominated political and economic um, society that was built for us uh, and built by us, um, but not built um, with us in mind um, as being equal participants. Um, So I applaud the I applaud um, ambition, um, but I am concerned that um, I would ne- um, I frankly am not celebrating Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, victory in Georgia as a sort of public member of QAnon um, going right. to Congress. Yeah. I don't think that that's an achievement for no. democracy or or my principles um, as a progressive feminist. Right. Um, and even as you know, I, I I'm going to have to ask our conservative friends to define themselves, how they how they define their conservatism. But that's not how I define my feminism. But what I would also say, um, Maddie, is that if you look back at our history again and try to like put things in context, it's not for me to solve the problems of the current incarnation of the GOP. Um, and I don't know if they're interested in solving them. I think that what they see is continued victories. They held state houses across the country, right? They lost the presidency. That was probably going to happen. I think a lot of them knew that was in the cards. They're up to their funny business, whatever is transpiring um, between now and January 20th, I believe. Uh, They're doing it for their own nefarious purposes, um, but they're not interested in changing. They're interested in doubling down. But if you go back, especially if we just take a look at New York State, New York State passed our own abortion rights legislation in 1970. We passed it three years before Roe v. Wade. And that legislation was brought forward by a Republican woman, Connie Cook, a Republican member of the New York State Assembly, representing um, parts of Ithaca, um, where Cornell is, uh, for those who aren't familiar uh, with New York State. That Republican Party doesn't exist anymore, Um, not in New York State and certainly not on the national level. And I don't think demographics are destiny. I think these victories require work, as we've talked about, and they require, as I say, vigilance. But I don't think that there's a future there um, on the path that, the, that this current Republican Party is heading on. And if I remember, if on planet B, alternate universe, <laughs> out there, I'm a member, I'm a woman, a self-identifying woman who is a, finds myself as a member of the Republican Party. I'd be wanting answers. I'd be wanting to understand what was happening and why it was being allowed to be driven by um, anti-feminists. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely tricky um, because the other thing, you know, you want, we want representation on all fronts and Republican views are, still need to be represented the way the party's gone. I think you know, that's, we, that's like a whole other topic, 100%. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a tricky question, but definitely one I feel like that's important, and especially in the lens of this year, um, looking at the numbers that have come in so far, especially like when looking at like white, white women too. Yeah. I mean, right. And I think so, are we able, right? And, and to your point about the white women, right? So caveat all of this, and maybe we should like regroup in six months when we do have yeah. a clear sense of like what actually transpired on November 3rd um, in terms of who voted where. But yes, I think a takeaway, we don't know the precise number, but we will be able probably to say that white women um, did not show up um, in the way that uh, as 
as voting for the Democratic ticket, as Black women, Latinx, Asian, Native American women who delivered Arizona from the Navajo Nation uh, Mm -hmm. for Joe Biden uh, and Mark Kelly. Um, Yeah, um, and that's because uh, uh, patriarchy and racism are a hell of a drug. Totally, that internalized misogyny. We, uh, mm-hmm. How do we break that down? That's definitely a feat that right. we need to start to look into and break down and hopefully solve um, in the years to come. But yeah. And I think I, I love what you said about demographics not being destiny and there being, you know, time, time for change and, you know, ways in which that demographic can evolve. Um, one way we've seen that transpire is through the squad, which obviously just like freaking love that verbiage and like the title of it, great branding, let me tell you. Um, and we've only seen sort of this become even more of a national point of focus, especially for young women. And hopefully you're gonna, you know, I, I'm very biased, but hopefully seeing that squad grow. And it, it leads me to a question about demographics in the context of age. And obviously, all members of the squad are on the younger side. I mean, oh my gosh, they're like, they're not using walkers, nothing wrong with that, but under the age of like <laughs> 65, they're relatable, they're approachable. They feel like you could have a conversation with they them still and still totally, get their period. Yeah, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> wow, they're pre-menopause. This is fucking amazing. But do you think we're gonna start to see an increase in young candidates using sort of them as role models? I think we're def- we're seeing it right now. Um, I, we're, we're living it. Uh, if, if you look at some of the women who did run in 2020, uh, especially again, like across the country um, and even here in New York State, Samra Brook, um, Michelle Hinchy, two candidates for state Senate. Yes, I, yeah, they can get John. like a, they can get a, they can get a like very big round of applause. Yes. Um, Samara looks like she'll win. Uh, Michelle looks in really good position as they work Yay, on opening so their good. absentee ballots. Mm-hmm. Um, Jen Lunsford running for state assembly right next door to Samra in Rochester. Um, also uh, a young woman, um, young mother. Uh, um, candidate. And then if you look to 2021, especially here in New York City, um, the number of um, uh, sort of like run for something level candidates or run for something eligible candidates, so that would be candidates under the age of 40, right, is is off the charts. Um, Trisha Shimamora um, is the first one that comes to mind, but there are many more. Um, so yeah, to the point about who's running for office, um, and and uh, sparking people's imagination for what's po- what's possible for them um, is definitely changing, and I think has cha- and has changed for sure. And those four members of Congress, um, I think that their goal is to flip our minds, right, totally. and and to expand our imaginations, and to understand that policy drives victories, mm-hmm. um, and that policy drives change and um, to connect we the voters with the policy that they're trying to bring um, and the movement that they see. I think that's what the, the four women of Congress, I think perhaps where they draw their power from is an immense, certainly immense uh, inner wells of strength uh, for sure, but also that they know that that's what, what voters want. Um, yeah. Green New Deal, Green New Deal, Medicare for all, police reform, yeah. The topics that drive them to show up every day and in the Capitol um, and what they're hearing from their constituents and the movement um, 
across the country. But to your point, I mean, we talk about that a lot here of how, you know, politics, people look at it as like, okay, did you win the vote? And then did you get that policy passed? Or did, you know, did these things pass? All these kind of like wins, like tangible wins. But people don't realize that what you push and how especially the squad is pushing the needle on these topics so far and so hard. Obviously, we didn't get a Green New Deal passed, but the fact that that's in the conversation and it's continued to be talked about is huge. Like, And these things that they're pushing the needle on, um, they've become such strong political forces. Um, and really, but when you look at maybe their like actual track record of things that have been able to pass, you know, it's not that great, but we're talking about these things that they're pushing out there and, you know, I guess the strength too on the House floor that they're pushing and the way they stand up for themselves and the rhetoric they push, like that is just changing the game. And that's part of that long game, I think too. Um, I just love that point of how it's less about, I guess, wins policy wise, but how what they mm -hmm. push like can actually completely change the policy um, future for our country. I think you're totally right. I think, first of all, you're speaking both from an, as an organizer, like uh, with an organizing <laughs> lens, right? Yeah. But I, um, and I, and I agree with you. And I, and I think perhaps those four Congresswomen would as well, um, because what they come from is movement, right? Yeah. And what they come from is um, community organizations uh, doing the work and that they know that an elected official is just one, right? Just one member of 435 in Congress, just one of the 27 or so member delegation, congressional delegation from New York State. But behind that one, um, in order for them to feel powerful, um, in addition to that deep inner well of strength uh, and moral fortitude that so many of us admire, um, they have to know and they do know that there are groups out there, um, constituencies out there that are working frankly, without the leadership of the House, right? They're not taking their, they're not taking their marching orders, not the congressional members, but yeah. these um, community organizations aren't taking their marching orders from, from DC. They're showing up to DC with solutions. Totally, um, yeah. Yeah. Super interesting to your point of the fact that they're one, one person each, right? Like there are so many Congress people from New York State, not a small state, but like, who do you think of when you think of that position? You think of AOC. And I think it leads to the question of how do you, especially at that age and within such a large population, become such a national talking point and, you know, part of the conversation? Is there a reason? I know her specific district was, um, you know, a part of the conversation because she was flipping a, an old guy out of there, which is always a classic topic um, and moment. But... In terms of mm -hmm. everyone else, I mean, how, how do some of these young um, candidates and then elected officials become a part of that national conversation? I think, you know, so there's never one answer. A lot of politics is, is just as much like luck as well as alchemy, as well as like political science and strategy, right? So it's some combination of all of those. Um, if, we're, if we're focusing exclusively on the four members of Congress, um, Congresswoman Presley, um, Ocasio-Cortez, Ilana Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, they're unbelievable communicators. And they're unbelievably firm in their position. Not to say that they're unwavering and perhaps, you know, aren't willing to compromise or evolve and have, you know, change their answer as they learn new information. But 
they're unwavering in the vision of the future that they have um, and they're able to articulate it uh, and it's debt-free, healthy, uh, uh, um, healthy environments, you know, saving us from sort of, you know, the perils that exist in the American, uh, like modern American life. Um, and, and that's compelling to people, right? When it feels like it's same old, same old, even if we all know that there are talented members of Congress, their ability to communicate and to deliver a message is un is unreal, um, and it's something that I try to watch and see yeah. and learn from. And we should all be trying to watch and see and learn from. And I think they also do their work with joy, and we totally. certainly have seen that in the past few weeks. The difference that um, being a leader and participating with joy, um, how igniting that is um, yeah. for other people's passion and imagination, and people are people want to be a part of that. Totally. Right. I, I think we're also just seeing their impacts like socially too and how, you know, I feel like young women now have this really powerful squad to look up to um, and see these women like on the house floor having a voice that I don't know if we've ever seen a woman like truly have such <laughs> a strong voice on like the floor like that. Um, it's really incredible. If people want to get involved with Eleanor's legacy, like where can they go and what can they do? So where can they go? We have a website. Uh, <laughs> we also are on Twitter and Instagram. Um, so you can find us across those media platforms at Eleanor's legacy. Um, and you can um, sign up for, for young professional women. We have an innovation council, uh, which is, in essence, a junior board, um, if that if that like um, it makes it a little more clear what their purpose is. But what they do is contribute volunteer hours um, on behalf of candidates and do some low dollar fundraising. Uh, and it's meant to be an entry point and an entryway for women in the city and across the state who want to be more involved, but maybe politics isn't their day job, mm -hmm. um, but want to le learn a bit more and be a more engaged member of our of our city and our state. And um, I would say, take a look around your own um, community and look to see who are the women mm -hmm. who should be tapped to run for office. Or there's never too many women, um, uh, we could never have too many women who want to be campaign managers, yes, digital organizers, leading digital teams. <laughs> yeah, I love that, I love all of that. Uh, I was definitely gonna say that um, especially your first kind of push for people to even just go volunteer places, get involved in different organizations, um, to work in the political space. That doesn't mean you have to be um, a politician. You can, there's so many different ways you can get involved from volunteering a few hours to actually, you know, maybe applying for jobs and organizations from organizing to um, all what you said, but we need more women, not just running, but we need more women behind the scenes too and in campaign <laughs> manager roles and in director roles in these places. So I love all of that. Um, Great. And I do too. I yeah. agree with me. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been just so pertinent right now. And I think the fight does not stop. And this conversation is the perfect example why. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And um, I especially appreciate the opportunity to talk about all of this work through that feminist lens. Yes. Um, and to remind people that
there have been important victories, we should, um, the, the historic achievement um, by Kamala Harris uh, mm. on behalf of uh, women everywhere, but especially black women, yes. Indian American women, mm-hmm. children of immigrants, um, what she has accomplished, um, we have to make sure that she succeeds. Yeah. Um, and that's up to all of us in the movement as well. Um, winning is only step one. Yeah. Succeeding uh, and building is step two. Yes. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you next Wednesday. But before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe. And while you're there, rate, review, give us the four-on-one on what you think. Um, and we will talk to you soon. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.